Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Radil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into the latest episode, The Spy Who Loved. It's the 15th of June, 1952, and we're at the Shelbourne Hotel, Kensington, where Christine Granville has been lodging since 1949. She's an ocean liner steward, living a life that's a far cry from the one she'd enjoyed during the war. It's on this day that she receives an unwelcome visit from a former colleague who has become obsessed with her. He stabs her to death. It's a brutal end to what had been a most extraordinary life. Together, Christine Granville's remarkable life, I'm joined by historian and author of the critically acclaimed The Spy Who Loved, Claire Mully. Claire Mully, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. You do some really fascinating research and the Second World War does seem to be an area that's dominated by male historians. So you do tend to offer some refreshing stories and counter what we tend to think about when we think about the Second World War. So one of your books, The Spy Who Loved, is about Christine Granville, otherwise known as Christina Scarbeck. Is that correct? Very well pronounced, yes. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> so could you tell me about her early life? Yes, of course. So she was born Christina Scarbeck in Poland, in Warsaw. She had a Jewish-born mother who had married a aristocratic Roman Catholic dad. Her mother had converted to marry him. And she was brought up in uh, sort of she was used to a lot of freedom and adoration. So her father taught her to ride and to shoot a gun. And yet, because she was part Jewish, she was also never really fully accepted in the higher echelons of Polish society. So she faced a lot of prejudice as well. And I think these things that she she learned about determination and resilience and sort of all those outward bound skills actually became very useful for her. And she really yearned always to be centre stage. Perhaps it's ironic because she was a woman, but it was war that enabled her to take that role that she always yearned for in life. I'm just really interested because obviously when you're a kid and you think about your dream jobs, being a spy is usually top of the list. It just seems like a really cool job to have. But I, I think that kind of reference and those ideas come from Hollywood films and things. So I'm wondering how a woman in the mid 20th century or the early 20th century would make that decision and, and would become a spy in the end. And then also how once that decision was made, how she actually went about conducting the work and how spies more generally were deployed during World War Two. Yes. OK. Well, I mean, I think we do tend to think of especially female special agents in these very romantic terms. But I, I think it would have been a truly horrendous job. You know, the courage that is needed, the dangers that these women undertook, but also all the incredibly hard training. So how she became involved, she was already married to her second husband in September 1939 when the war broke out. And she was on their way to his diplomatic posting in southern Africa. But they turned around, they, they were aiming to get back to Poland to serve their country. But by the time they reached Europe, Poland had already been occupied. So her husband went to France and rejoined the Polish forces that were massing there. 
And uh, he thought she'd have a, a few cocktails in London, I think. But she was determined to play her part. So within two days of docking at Southampton, she's actually banging on the supposedly secret headquarters of the British Secret Services. And you can just imagine the look on the faces of these men. Nobody's meant to know where their offices are for a start. And then she's Polish. And to work for the British Special Services, you do have to be British. That's the number one thing. And of course, there's no other women in this role at this point. In fact, women were only recruited a couple of years later when SOE was established, partly because she showed how effective women could be in the role. So they're all like kind of laughing at her. But she has a brilliant plan. She knows how to ski in and out of Poland under the radar because when she was a rather bored Polish countess married to her first husband, she used to smuggle cigarettes across the border by skiing. She didn't even smoke. She just did it for kicks, really, just for the thrill. So she knew the routes in and out. And she also knew the Goral people who were some of the first to resist. Britain was desperate for contact with the resistance in Poland, the first occupied nation. They wanted to know how the Germans were organising, where the troops were being sent and so on. And this woman had the skills, the contacts, the languages, everything they needed. So despite everything, they took her on. And before Christmas 1939, she's actually in place. She's got a cover story and she's meant to be a French journalist. And she's in Budapest preparing to undertake the first of what were ended up being four perilous missions skiing over the high Tatra mountains at minus 30 degrees into occupied Poland. And she set up the first communications between the British and the Poles. And also she, she brought in information, propaganda. She brought in money for the fledgling Polish resistance. And then she scouted around the country, assessing where the troops were being sent, how the Germans were organising, what was happening to the Polish Jewish population and bringing all that information back out. And in fact, on her last mission into Poland, she brought out this microfilm, which she smuggled. She actually stuffed it inside her leather glove and brought it across borders. Having been arrested and talked her way out of trouble, that's another story. And eventually this microfilm reached Churchill's desk and it had the potential to change the course of the war. It was some of the first evidence of Operation Barbarossa when the Nazis actually betrayed their former allies, the, the Soviets, and planned to invade the Soviet Union. So this information is what Churchill told his daughter, Sarah, that you know this, this special agent was his favourite spy. Oh my goodness. Her life seems extraordinary, but I just wonder a bit more about her personality. Do we have any hints from the the historical archive or records or from your own research about what kind of person she was? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my research was extraordinary. It was such an adventure, as well as a privilege, really, to investigate her. So I met some of the men who had served alongside her. I met family members. And of course, this picture really built up. I ended up trying on her jewellery at her, <gasps> uh, one of her lover's nieces has inherited oh, her jewellery, wow. and so on, which was extraordinary. So so, um, yes, she, I mean, the book is called The Spy Who Loved because she was a very passionate woman. She loved adventure and adrenaline. And in fact, the, the British minister in Budapest who worked with her, Sir Owen O'Malley, said she had a pathological love of danger. And he said she was absolutely brilliant. She could do anything with dynamite except eat it. Okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> she loved men. She had two husbands, as I mentioned. She had many lovers. But above all, I really think she loved freedom and independence Freedom for the country of her birth, Poland. Freedom for her adopted country, Britain, because, of course, she did become a British citizen and, and lived in Britain after the war under her adopted codename in the war, Christine Granville. But also freedom for herself personally. You know, she was very much ahead of her times. She wanted to live life to the full in every single regard. So a passionate, flaming patriot. Oh, well, that's a brilliant description. I'm also interested, before we move on to perhaps her most notorious 
mission. But I'm interested in, in how she fits into the hierarchy of Second World War intelligence at that time. Was she one of many people doing that kind of job or was she particularly unique? Uh, yeah, no, she, she was very unusual when she started out particularly, but even at the end of the war, there weren't that many. So she started working, as I said, in 1939 and she was in a department called Section D. Now the D stood for destruction. It was all about sabotage overseas and so on. That was also, she was also working for an intelligence, sort of more of a spying rather than special agent roles. So she did both roles in different capacities and in different theatres of the war. She served in three theatres of the war and did a lot of different work. She started off in that organisation, which all related to what we now call MI6. But by the time that SOE, the Special Operations Executive, set up, she was a special agent. In fact, one of the most highly trained special agents. She excelled in silent killing. That was the course that she really did best at. But there's actually no evidence she ever killed anyone in the war. Oh, wow. There were 39 women who were sent to France alone in that role. She was one of those 39. And there were a few other working in some of the other countries as well. But it's not a huge group. And there was one mission that she famously took part in. She went to save the lives of um, Francis Kamartz and Zan Fielding. Could you tell me about that mission? Yes, of course. Well, I mean, this is this was sort of, it wasn't a mission she was given. This was something that she just took on her own. While she was serving in France, she'd been parachuted in behind enemy lines to be second in command to Francis Kamartz, who is actually Michael Morpurgo's uncle, by the way. Oh, so wow. I've done a bit of work with him. She's working as his courier, essentially, smuggling information, moving weaponry, wireless sets and that sort of thing around, preparing for the Allied invasion, the liberationary forces to come in in the south of France. So D-Day in the south and as part of that work she's involved in the battle of Vercor. she manages to make the first contact between the french resistance on one side of the alps and the italian partisans on the other side and she actually secures the defection of an entire german garrison single-handedly get these men to defect on a very strategic pass and when she came down from the mountain she learnt that three of the men that she'd been working with a frenchman and the two englishmen you mentioned had been arrested at a roadblock and had been taken to prison. And the French didn't know that actually they had Francis, the main organiser in the region who they were looking for. They hadn't put two and two together. But they decided just to have the three men shot the next morning. Anyhow, it's just the easiest option at that stage in the war. So Christine begged the local French resistance circuit they'd been working with to try and break the three men out of jail. She was... She was Francis's lover at this point as well. She was desperate that he should survive, but she wanted to save all three. They refused. I think rightly, they couldn't risk the men and the ammunition that she had, you know, spent ages trying to coordinate the SOE to drop to them by parachute, these containers of guns and ammunition and so on, so that they could keep particular rail and road routes open and close other ones for the liberationary forces. So when they refused, she got on a bicycle. She actually hated cycling. It's one of the few things she really loathed and wasn't skilled at. But she cycled on her own 20 kilometres to the prison and she sang a love song around the prison gates uh, and eventually heard the refrain. It was a song that she and Francis used to sing in the field together. And she heard him singing the chorus down from one of the windows. So she knew where he was. So she stormed in. She'd taken a, a radio crystal, which was how they were used in the wild. It's a bit like your SIM card today, I suppose. It provided the signal coding so that people could communicate back with London. So she took it in as evidence that she was a British secret agent. It was a broken crystal, so the Nazis couldn't use mm-hmm. it. And uh, so she proved who she was. I mean, imagine walking into this prison to a, the Gestapo officer in charge, saying that she was a British special agent, proving it, and then demanding the release of these men. And the man had a gun. He started laughing at her. You know, what a coup for him. He's got another one. But she spent two hours talking to him and a combination of a bribe, but also threats saying that the Americans were due 
in the next few hours. If he didn't let the men go, she would ensure that he was strung up from a lamppost. But if he did save the three men, she would speak for him to the Allied authorities. And eventually he he started trembling. Apparently his coffee spilled into his saucer. He gave her good coffee and, and spilled his own. And, uh, and finally he agreed to it. And so he took the three men out of their cells, led them towards the football pitch. Francis thought it was his last moments. And then they turned a corner, pushed them into a car. She was in the car and they drove away. So on her own, saved the lives of those three men. But that was really sort of a PS to the, to the actual missions that she was meant to be doing. That's incredible. And it kind of reveals so much about the force of her character as well and how intelligent she must have been to be able to manipulate people in such a such a, a, a way. Yeah, extraordinary quick thinking. One of the things that she said to them was that she was General Monty's niece. What? <laughs> um, and of course she wasn't. And, and she didn't, you know, her language skills were quite limited. I mean, I think they could have looked through it, but she obviously had that force of character to just push it all through. So that, that moves us on, moves us on to the next stage of our conversation, I suppose. How does someone like that, who's had so many extraordinary experiences, has been so powerful, had so much freedom to really live their, to use a cliche phrase, their best life. How do they readjust to life after the war and how did she do it? Well, it was incredibly hard for people, for for everyone who was demobbed actually trying to come back and adjust into civilian life. And you see all sorts of crime statistics and waves going on. And of course, Christina was no less than that. In fact, she had, you know, she had been there to celebrate the liberation of France in, in Lyon and then in Paris. She'd seen all the parties, knowing that her own country, Poland, was still under occupation. And of course, Poland ended the war, you know, the first of the Allies with a Soviet-backed communist regime imposed upon them. And she knew she couldn't go home and her country wasn't free. So it was incredibly hard for her. And then as a woman also, she saw that many of the men that she had served alongside were redeployed. She was offered secretarial work. You know, she wasn't a secretary. She didn't have very good typing speeds. Mm. You know, she had no interest in that kind of work. She asked to be redeployed as suited her skills and experience. And of course, that wasn't forthcoming. And when I, I applied under the Freedom of Information Act and got all the papers out, you see that men are writing in the margins. You know, I don't believe she's done everything she says she has. She's a very difficult little girl. That sort of thing on her papers. It's extraordinary to see. So the sexism is very evident. She faced that. Then, of course, she wasn't a British citizen. So after the war, she took a number of menial jobs. She was a hat check girl and a waitress and so on. And then she got a role on the passenger ships. And I suppose this gave her some travel, some freedom. But she was a bathroom stewardess. And just before the war, when she was first coming back from her husband's diplomatic placement to serve in England, she was travelling first class on a passenger ship. And now she's reduced to being a bathroom steward. And nonetheless, she does that. The captain said that any one of the staff who had served should wear their medals. And so she had the Quad de Guerre from the French. She had the British OBE and the George Medal and all of these other, you know, this big array of ribbons showing all the theatres of the war in which she served, far more than anyone else on the ship. But it worked against her. People said, well, how can this woman have these? She must have stolen them. And she had a foreign accent. And was she Jewish? Because her mother had been born Jewish. And so it all stacked against her. And only one man kind of defended her, another bathroom steward called Dennis Muldoney. And they became friends. After that tour was over and she came back to London, Muldoney wouldn't leave her alone. And she, she wasn't interested in him. She didn't want to know him. He was following her around. She, she called him her lame dog. She was obviously quite condescending towards him. She was fed up with him, but he was, he was obsessed and he stalked her. He followed her to restaurants and cafes. 
And unfortunately, in June 1952, she'd actually got a flight to go out and meet Andrzej Kowerski, a Polish special agent who'd also served Britain. And uh, Andrew's niece told me that she'd finally agreed to marry him. He'd been asking her all his life, and they, I think they were soulmates, really. Um, but her flight had been cancelled, so she returned to her hotel. And unfortunately, Moldoni turned up that night again and demanded his letters back. And she was saying, I've burnt them. She had, she had no time for him. She just thought it was a waste of space. And so um, she said, no, I've burnt them and made to move. And he just lunged for her and he stabbed her through the heart. So just seven years after the end of the war, she was murdered in a South London hotel. It's such, such a sad ending, an abrupt ending to an incredible life. It is an abrupt ending. But I, I just want to say that I don't think we should remember her, you know, like that. It, it's not very often that special agents or female special agents are killed for love. And, and I think that's what happened. But, you know, let's remember her at the height of her work serving in Poland or serving in France, doing so much, you know, of such significance for the Allied war effort. Well, let's move let's move on from that then and talk about her legacy. And, um, you know, I mean, it's always hard to talk about the impact that any single person had on on history. But she clearly did make an impact and she's affected you as well. I mean, we have we have your wonderful book about her as well. So could you tell me about what, what her lasting mark on um, history has been? Okay, well, I mean, there is so much to say in here. She's inspired so many people, of course, including myself, but she inspired Ian Fleming. So Vesper Lynn, the first Bond girl, I believe, is based on Christina. That's what he said in some of his interviews when he was promoting that first James Bond book. But, you know, she's much more than an inspiration to us today or to Fleming. She's much more than a man's sort of fantasy figure. She was a real James Bond. I mean, she was better than Bond. She was out there making a significant contribution to the Allied war effort. And so that's why she got such high honours. That's why she got a personal tribute from Churchill. So I think that the role that she undertook and that the other special agents undertook really made a significant contribution to Allied victory. So that's number one. But beyond that, I think she's also this wonderful example. You know, I hope if the book achieves anything, perhaps it's two things. One, that her life really highlights the role of Poland in the war. You know, the first of the Allies, very early on she's serving. And then serving as an expatriate for for your freedom and ours, as the Poles say, for all of the Allies, and yet ends in tragedy with, with her personal tragedy and the tragedy of Poland at the end of the war. So it tells that story, which we tend to forget in the West, I think. We're very interested in France, which is also full of amazing stories, um, but we tend to focus less in this area, and I think we should remember that. But also I think it's important because I think Christina's story really helps us to rebalance our view on the effectiveness of the women who served. You know, all too often women in the resistance and female special agents in particular are presented as femme fatales or, you know, honey traps. And that's not why they had uh, a, a special skill. What was unique or what was distinctive about the women was that they were ignored and they were overlooked. They could operate under the radar. So a number of times Christine will be in the field with a man and if they're stopped, the man's bags will be checked but the hand grenades are under cheese sandwiches in her knapsack and they're just overlooked. You know, it's that being able to operate without being picked up upon. And that meant that the women were really effective. And I think when we even, even now I see books about the women or chapters in books about Christina and they say, well, she was so beautiful. She was a pre-war beauty queen, which she was. But a lot of the women weren't. You know, one had one leg. We had grandmothers. We had very plain women. It made no difference. What Christina's story tells us is how effective they were and the results that they could really bring. Claire, this has been absolutely fascinating and I would urge anyone listening to this to um, grab a copy of, of your book on her life because it's one of those stories that we all need to know and I think with your work and with the profile that your 
giving her and the work that you've done to get her plaque um, sorted out. I think you're we're finally recognising somebody that was overlooked after the war. So thank you for that and also thank you for your time today. Pleasure. Dennis Muldowney was hanged at Penterville Prison on the 30th of September 1952. But what of Christine? Her body was interred at St Mary's Catholic Cemetery, Kensal Green, and thanks to the tireless campaigning of Claire Mully, in September 2020, a plaque was unveiled outside the site of the former Sherbourne Hotel, commemorating her life. This is-